Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Matthew Broderick. Matthew, some wonderful stage credits, starting out when you were 17 and then uh, appearing in shows like Harvey Firestein's off-Broadway production of Torch Song Trilogy. Uh, Neil Simon's Brighton Beach Memoirs, and a year later, Biloxi Blues. Those were back in the early 80s. Of course, we know you from your your work in uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, for which you won the Tony Award. You also won a Tony, of course, for, um, uh, what was it, uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs, I guess, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And now, after some memorable film work as well, you're appearing on Broadway in a show called The Foreigner. That's right. That's me. It's interesting, your role in The Foreigner... um, because there's so much that I read about you that refers to you being shy. And, of uh-huh. course, The Foreigner is all based on the idea of a man who is so incredibly shy that he pretends or, or has a friend contrive to get everyone to think that he doesn't speak English right. so everyone will leave him alone. Yeah. Is this – Certainly not the premise close to, to your life, but but is this this rap of being shy? Is is this true? And how does how does playing this character play into that? Um, well, it, you know, I have been told that about myself. Uh, I I don't th- I may be shy with strangers or at first, you know, I seem to give that impression to people, but then I um it, uh, then I can I get very unshy ultimately, uh, at, as does this character. Which is part of the fun of it is as soon as uh, as soon as the the contrivance that that he doesn't speak English happens, he uh, you know blossoms into a quite the opposite of a uh, wallflower. I mean, he starts manipulating the whole house and uh, you know torturing the bad guy, and um, he just really really. Over uh, flips from shy to unshy, which is uh, which is really the fun of the role, and I guess there's a little of that in me. I mean, being a performer, you know, I might seem reserved, but then again, I do seem to like to go in front of two thousand people. And, well, part and of what happens. <laughs> well, part of what happens, of course, is the shyness, as you say, it becomes it becomes a ruse to let everything else out. Yeah, and yeah, and that's it, certainly it, something you've you've been letting things out for a long yeah, time now. Sure, and. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too obvious about it, but it, you know, when somebody's pretending to be somebody else, very often they're much more. Uh, they can express themselves more easily. You know, I guess actors do that in a way, but certainly that's what happens to this character. He can just as, as soon as he doesn't have to play his role of uh, reserved Englishman, um, uh, uh, science fiction proofreader, uh, he he really comes out comes out. Well, you spend quite a bit of the show, at least at the beginning of the show, quiet on stage. You don't mm-hmm. really speak. Yeah. Is that tough for you as an actor not to speak, to be able to – Yes. Uh, I mean it's an interesting uh, exercise because it, usually in plays when you're on stage, you're talking or you leave. <laughs> and in this, in this one, you, you, you don't talk but you sit – I just sit there for, for quite a while. So, you know, it's an exercise in, in listening but, uh, you know, I try not to – make it look like I'm making you think I'm listening. You know, I want to really be listening. And at the same time, there's a part of me that wants to talk or, or want, you know, if I, I, 
uh, my instinct is to is to uh, help, you know, in a scene or, or make noise. Yeah. So it's a, it's a strange thing to so see that quietly. Kind of go against your intuition, basically. Sometimes, and you're yeah. literally Scott Schwartz, the director, has you sitting off in a corner yes. for, for a good chunk a long, of the first a act, long time, just observing. And, yeah, and then I go to the center and observe for a while, <laughs> and uh, it's the construction of the play. Yeah. The play is, uh, you know, in. It's it's a funny thing. It's almost feels it, it's an old fashioned style in a way, older than what it is. I mean, it was written in the eighties, but it has a sort of, uh, you, you know, when I, it seems like a lot of, uh, you know, the man who came to dinner or, or, or an era when plays were, uh, you could have five scenes of of setting up the the plot uh, at, at the beginning of a play, which you don't see so much anymore. And this play, you you have to pay attention and not laugh all that much for about 20 minutes or so you just have to do that and and then uh, eventually the audience uh, well when you're sitting there quietly <laughs> yeah not as the character in the show but uh-huh. as matthew broderick the person yeah what are you thinking like what am i going to do for lunch tomorrow sometimes that kind of stuff? sometimes <laughs> does, does your mind wander oh definitely uh, you know hopefully not so much that i forget when it is time to speak <laughs> the the trickiest times for me and this is in other plays too uh, if you have one line in a long scene, it is very easy to uh, that big moment to come and go without you ever having noticed it. it. To yeah. Blow it. yeah, it used to happen to me in the, in the producers. Uh, I had one line at the you know and keep it gay, you know like come on sign or we're trying to get him to sign the contract and I and there's underscoring and I would I missed that line quite often because I hadn't spoken in a long time so my mind would be. On more important things like, uh, uh, you know, tomorrow's schedule or well, – <laughs> It's interesting. You're doing this show now at the Roundabout mm-hmm. in their off-Broadway space. It's not a Broadway production. Right. And certainly now, you know, at this stage in your career, you, you did a lot of off-Broadway earlier in your career. Right. How did it come about that you were <clears throat> going to do this, do this in a 400-seat house for a limited run? Yeah. Uh, it's it's very different than certainly coming off of the, the, the much-vaunted appearance in The Producers. Yeah. Well, you know – that's nice. I mean, it's very nice to do a limited thing because, uh, you know, the producers, fortunately, was so exciting and thrilling and, and so was How to Succeed for me. So, But uh, when you sign up for a year of something, there's always some fear that if it doesn't, you know, work very well, but it sort of keeps going and going, you know, that would be – there's something nice about knowing that it's just going to go till January. And the way it came about is uh, – I'm not even all that cl- – I don't understand what happened because uh, I had a break. I had finished um, – I think I had been – I went back into the producers. I don't know the day. I've done like two or three movies and I went back into the producers since I was in the producers. And then I had about five months off or six months off before the – we start shooting the movie of the producers, which is in February. And – this old play that I suddenly they called and said, you know, it's already half cast. They want you to play Charlie, and it goes at these dates, which fit exactly. Uh, not that I just did it because I wanted to fill time. I don't mean that, but it was a, a play that I loved, and it happened to fit perfectly. And um, I also thought uh, I also enjoy a small, you know, a, a small audience is it can be a very nice thing. I did the uh, Horton Foot plays in in smaller theaters and Torch Song. When I did it before it went to Broadway, was in a I don't know hundred and something seat house I think, 
and then moved to the Actors Playhouse, which is a little bit bigger. But it, it's a nice, th- you know, to to go from something with with eighteen hundred people and uh, body mics to no mics and and four hundred is is a very nice thing. It's not, I, I enjoy that. So you knew the play, but you knew the foreigner beforehand. Had you seen other productions of it? Yeah, I uh, saw the in the eighty whenever the first the first one in New York was with Anthony Hield and eighty four. Eighty four, yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. I went there and uh, I just adored it. It was one of my favorite plays I ever saw, and I uh, loved him in it. And never... did you see, in fact, Larry Shu, who was in? I it saw for Larry Shu play yeah. Froggy. Yeah, which was great. Yeah. And I... then he took over for Charlie. Didn't didn't he, know that yes. we should say Larry Shu is is the playwright yes. who sadly passed away only about a year after the Foreigner became a success. That's and right. A couple of his plays were produced in New York posthumously. That's right. Um, the Foreigner was the only the only show that New York saw while he was alive, I believe. I think that's true. He um, it ran for two years, and he he played Charlie for a very long time, hmm. and I believe he died pretty shortly after the two right after it closed. Yeah. In a uh, commuter plane. Yeah, and then later on we saw – Broadway saw his play The Nerd. Which and he written before. Earlier. Before he he came out of – he was originally out of Milwaukee. I think Milwaukee that's Repertory. Right. That's right. He developed. shows. And right. a really interesting play, an uncharacteristic play for him based on the other two called When's His Last Square, which yes. the public did. Which they did so right after he died. He was a neat the, guy. Yeah. But, so you go back. But, you know, in terms of going back, you just mm-hmm. mentioned the Horton Foote plays. Mm-hmm. And, and that was really where you got your – your start on stage, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty much. I, I um, when I was still in high school, I did uh, um, uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, I think that's the one. Or nineteen eighteen. I think it was. You were about seventeen. I'm so I old, I don't even remember things. <laughs> but, but Valentine's. I Day. bet Horton would remember. And he's got I a know. few years on you. Well, he writes autobiographies, so he <laughs> remembers everything. But uh, he, he uh, that play I did with my father. At HB Studio, and I was still in high school, so it's the only time I ever. It was the start of my professional career. Although, I went from there right back to high school, and you know, I didn't keep it. I just took a little break from. I didn't really start my career till after till Torch Song, which is when I was twenty. Well, your your father, James Broderick, the mm-hmm. actor, and you were in this show when you were in in, in school, right? Then. What? How did you then get into Harvey Firestein's uh, Torch Song trilogy? Was that your decision? Were, were you wanting to be an actor? Yes. Uh, from high school, even when I was a very little boy, I used to apparently tell people I was going to be an actor. Um, but then, then I went through a period from about seven on where I did not want to be an actor. I loved being at theaters. I liked going with my father to work. But if anybody asked me, do you want to do that, I would... No, and I, and I remember even my father did a play somewhere where they needed two children, and uh, they they suggested me and my sister. And I remember when my father called, he was in it was in Stockbridge or something like that, and he called the house, and and I was on the phone, and I think my mom was on the other extension, and he said, you know, do you want to be in the play? And I burst into tears, <laughs> just just the. Uh, the thought of it. That was the answer. That was my no. How God old were you no. at the time? You weren't 17, obviously. No, I was like eight or, uh-huh. you know, I was not a great reader is, is my memory. So I I was sort of afraid of standing there having to read out loud. Uh-huh. I didn't realize that kids get taught their lines by their parents and just rattle them off and don't need to read anything. But um, so anyway, I didn't want to be an actor until high school. Then I started 
doing plays. School plays. And yeah. that time, I mean, your dad, certainly family came along mm-hmm. right around the time you were in high school. That's your right. dad played the father on yep. the ABC series Family. Mm-hmm. And this was a couple, of, certainly a few years after he had done certainly the movies that I think of him for, Alice's Restaurant right. and Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. Yeah. So your getting into it Dog seemed to parallel when he was getting some of his most public recognition. Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, when he got the uh, television series, uh, that actually – that's when we got money for – that's why I went to this – I went to a private high school that had a nice theater in it, uh, you know, largely because of that series too. You know, both my sisters, college, college got paid for. Mm-hmm. Everything sort of changed in our, in our family. Uh, I would have found a way anyway, but but that's, that's how I got started. I had a wonderful teacher in uh, high school named Bruce Cornwall, an acting teacher. And then – my father would come and see all those plays, and he would even come, you know, to uh, late rehearsal sometimes and uh, try to help me out. Uh, and he, uh, you know, unf- he died right when I got start, right when I really started. But he did. He saw Torch Song. Torch Song is really the only play of mine he ever saw, hmm. except the one that we were in that, together. Uh, together. And then, yeah. and then from Torch Song. You kind of made this sudden leap into movie stardom with almost no preamble because War Games was your second second film, I believe. Yeah, it was a very uh, very strange year. I was I was twenty, I think, the day I left Torch. So I I got to I auditioned for everything. I got nothing, and I really auditioned for summer style everything I could, uh, commercials, TV shows. Uh, and all I ever got was, yeah, he's, you know, no. And um, <laughs> then uh, I read with Harvey. You know, I met Harvey. I didn't know who Harvey was. And people knew about the play a little bit. And uh, he just – we sat at a table. You know, nobody at home can see. We're at a little table here. You know, we just sat across the table and read some scenes. And then uh, the producer came – I went out in the lobby and the producer came out and said, you know, Harvey wants to – we would like to cast you. Hmm. So, you know, it, it, the way that's you need so much luck. I mean, Torch Song was not a job that people were particularly after. My agent wasn't even inclined for me to do it, really. You know, was it a teeny fourth? You had to walk up four flights to the Richard Allen Center. There, there was a broken elevator. When it rained, uh, water would pour onto the stage. <laughs> and, uh, Harvey would constantly throughout the play be moving the plants so that the water would go into the plants. Estelle Getty was in it. Uh, anyway, it was a a magical thing because it was this thing that nobody, you know, it was four over four hours long at that time, I think. Mm. Audience was not, it was empty. It was not going to even do its whole run. And uh, Mel Gusso, I think, from The Times came and, you know, loved it. And then that made all these other critics, at least that's my memory, then all these other critics came and it became this little smash and moved to a nice off-Broadway theater right near my house where I lived. I could walk the two blocks. Uh, you know, so it's just that I got in a, a play that took off and, and that led to everything. That Then directors would come into town and want to see this play and casting directors... You know, if a casting director, if you can say, come see me in this hit off-Broadway show that nobody can mm-hmm. get tickets to, uh, it's much. It's a much nicer calling card than 
please look at my 8x10 and, you know, don't you like how I seem when we meet? And, you know, and, it's just much better. And then, of course, a fellow named Neil Simon came to see you. You yes. got his attention. Yes. And that's that was the, the big – my huge break for me was I – he came in uh, and so did Herbert Ross. And so did uh, the casting director and maybe the director of War Games. Uh-huh. And uh, I got a lot of callbacks for War Games and then um, I read for Brighton Beach like f- four times I think, you know – Starting in an office and moving on to the auditions on the on a stage in Broadway, and then I read. I came in to read for the director and Neil and the casting people, and I read a lot of scenes. And Herbert Ross said, uh, "We're doing a movie too. Would you? Can you read uh, some of these scenes?" And I said I had to go, which was not true, but I could come back because what I wanted was to cheat and look at the movie script, which worked. <laughs> they gave me the film script, and I went and ate some lunch and kind of read it. Well, was it different than the, the stage version? This was uh, Max Dugan Returns, actually. Oh, oh, oh. oh. And, um, and I came back, and I sat in the audience with Herbert Ross, and I read through all the scenes of Max Dugan Returns, and they said, wait around. We want you to read for Brighton Beach again with uh, Jelko Ivanik, who's playing uh, Stanley, the brother so I waited. Jelko came. I read with Jelko. Uh, I'd been there hours and hours. <laughs> and I was leaving the uh, stage, and the uh, casting director uh, said, well, you had a good day. And I said, well, did I get the – because I had a feeling I was got the movie. And I'd never gotten anything except for Torch Zone. And I said, did I get the movie? And she said, no, you got both. But I'm not supposed to tell you, but you're you're doing both. Oh my so, God. so act surprised when they tell you, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so now walk out into the daylight from this theater knowing that you're starring, absolutely starring in Neil Simon's next play. Wow. And you're making your motion picture debut in a couple of months. So what did you do to celebrate? I went with Jelko, <laughs> who I knew a little bit. Uh-huh. We went and ate. <laughs> and... Uh, I was sort of stunned. I called my father because he'd been, you know, what's happening, what's happening. He was sick at the time. And he was so thrilled on the other end of the phone that that's when I started to think, oh, this is very, this is a good thing. Now, in these formative years, your mom is a writer. Uh-huh. Um, was she writing back then? I know she wrote one of your films. She was a painter. Because really. I see both artist and writer. Yeah, she, she was a, uh, a painter. Uh, and, of course, your very close friend from childhood, Kenny Lonergan, yes. is now a noted playwright and screenwriter. So you were just growing up around this. Was was he already interested in theater at this time? Was that oh, concurrent yeah. for both of you? That yeah, you got, we both, you went wrote, to Walden and that was – He wrote plays at Walden that I was in. That's sort of how we uh, – that's part of how we got to be friends then in, in ping pong. Uh, yeah, I, I was – I, I, I grew up right with him, and uh, there's and there's a bunch of other writers who Kenny then met at NYU. But there was a whole a whole crowd of support, and my you know wonderful parents who were both uh, in the arts and just helped me along. Uh, and then and then I just I went out to LA to shoot that movie Max Dugan Returns, and while I was there, I got cast in. Uh, war games, which fit exactly between the movie and uh, and Brighton Beach. So 
I I realized I left Torch Song to my last night when the next morning I was getting on a plane was my birthday. Uh, my 20th birthday and my 21st birthday I was flying back to open in in Brighton Beach not bad it was an amazing year but uh, my father died that year so it was a year of uh, bittersweet basically yeah I mean it was a a horrible year with great things happening it it was very strange now roughly two decades not even two maybe a decade later you Mm -hmm. were in How to Succeed in Business without really trying you were not known as a musical comedy star you were not Mm -hmm. a song and dance man how did this come about (laughs) how did you you get that part it was a great part I got the part because um, some producer I don't remember the original one said that would be a good good role for you and uh I said, yes, it would. And uh, the time, I think Gene Sachs was going to direct it. I met, you know, with Gene about it. And I just, that fell through, but I kept at it. I, I started studying singing. And uh, I would go every day, basically. and uh, T- Taking lessons? Yeah. yeah. And uh, that went on much longer than I thought because the play kept getting got put off for like a few years. So Keith Davis was his name. He was like almost ninety years old, and, and he was just an extremely lovely man. And he sort of gave me the confidence that I could. I mean, how to succeed is not uh, an opera, and you know, but right. you do need to be able to, you know, sing a little bit and and, and to move well on the stage, yes. which, which you did. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you know, as you tell the story, you know, there are a lot of people who talk about growing up in the theater and they start naming the musicals they saw. Your story yeah. of coming up through theater is a very, very different one. Yeah. So it really was. Yeah, I, I don't know how it how it came about. A lot of these these twists. Um, I, I always loved uh, that musical. I remember as a kid, I knew the movie. Mm-hmm. I always loved musicals, actually, mm-hmm. but I never quite had the nerve to to do it. I never took dance class or anything like that. Well, How to Succeed, if I recall, was on Broadway like the year before you were born. Yes. So you obviously never saw the original. But no, you, but you I, saw the, I saw the movie. Yeah. Yes. So you saw Robert Morris. Robert Morris and Michelle Lee. So when you were J. Pierpont uh, Finch yourself, mm-hmm. the window washer who becomes the chairman of Worldwide Wickets, Wickets. was it? Yeah. Uh, how much of Matthew Broderick was in that character? Um, a lot. I mean, that's always a hard question. I've never, you know... I, they all feel like me, really. I mean, when they when they're fully realized, which that was, I, I feel you know when I feel like I'm really at my, you know, I don't want to say my best, but that's what I mean. Uh, uh, I, it feels like me, and and I, Jay Pierpont and me came together. You know, I, I don't know how much of it is because Jay Pierpont was not exactly shy and retiring. He maybe came no, across was, that way at first, but obviously... Well, in fact, he was more Ferris Bueller than yeah, he was yeah. uh, Charlie Baker. Yeah. Uh, he, Jay Pierpont is a... I think it's a little... Uncle- he's a total manipulator and liar, basically. Uh, however, he... Uh, you're a little bit unsure if he's as evil as he seems... It's it's a very interesting character because he's good heart in a way he's a good hearted person mm-hmm. who's just doing exactly what you're supposed to do in business you know right. to move up succeeding yeah but on the other hand he's without exactly saying it he's he lies to everybody and you know tricks his mm-hmm. way yeah. Uh, yeah. past everything yeah. he's a total liar 
Well, there's, there's almost a song cue in here because we're talking about him <laughs> believing in himself. And there's yeah. a, a standout song in that show that Frank Lesser wrote, yeah. which you performed so well. Oh, I believe you. in you. Right. Was that fun for you to sing? It was very fun to sing. It's a beautiful song. Uh, Frank Lesser, you know, was a genius in Abe Burroughs. And um, that song was always hard because it was such a signature. It was It was so much Robert Morse's, you know, song. So in a way that was the uh the most challenging part of that evening for me because the rest of it I felt like I could make my own but that it was so identified with him and and I don't know that we ever quite it it didn't go it, it I don't know it, we, it had to be different, you know. We didn't, we didn't know to make it more ballady or or how to make it uh you know our our own production. Uh but it's a absolutely beautiful song and and uh and it, and it, th- the thrilling thing about it, you know, is that he's singing to himself. It's a song that would normally be. I, in fact, it might even have been written. I've heard for uh, Rosemary to sing to him. Uh, you know, to buck him mm-hmm. up. Right, right. And then at some point on the road, I don't know if this is true, but somebody said, you know, I think J. Pierpont should just sing it to himself. <laughs> and it became the showstopper. <laughs> yeah, and then he sang into the mirror, and uh, in the movie, actually, she sings it to him a little bit. Uh, it's a lovely melody. From How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, the 1992 revival, Matthew Broderick and I Believe in You. It was 92, was it? It was a 92. I think it was 92. Mm, it was 95. 95. Yeah, was I it 95? No, you were in it. <laughs> I was in it. If it's 92, then I'm really... Well, from the 1995 revival of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Matthew Broderick and I Believe in You. Recently, New York Magazine came out with um, a very nice article about you and kind of looks like a mugshot of you. Yeah, I'm holding this up for the I camera yeah. so people can see. It looks like you just fell out of bed. The hair's a little bit tousled, a couple days' growth of beard. There's a very interesting uh, quote that they made in the magazine. Here's, it was written by... Um, who wrote the article? Michael Agar, Agar, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. Wrote, wrote this about Matthew Broderick. He says, he represents an unusual breed, the idle celebrity neither opposed to his fame nor especially motivated by it. He's the reed bending in the wind. How do you respond to that? I assume uh, you've uh, read this I article. Bend. Uh, I, I, <laughs> do we have some time? I'm, I'm, I'm showing Matthew the article so he can read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I guess that's true in a way. I, 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 I uh, let's see. What did he say? Oh, unusual breed. Yeah. The, the only part I, you know, that I don't bend in the wind about is the actual when I'm working. You know, that's the only part I would. I would just point. There's two things. You know, there's my celebrityness or whatever, and that probably the that's public a, image. Yeah, and that might be an active quote about it. I mean, I, you know, I've I've done Letterman twenty something. I mean, I'm not. It's not that I don't promote myself and stuff like that. I'm not a. Well, I don't well hide. yeah, you, you and Regis are kind of regulars. On that yeah. <laughs> um. But uh, I'm not. I never wanted that to be the main thing about me. I always wanted to be, you know, not be a personality, but be more. I want to be seen a little bit as a reed that blows in the wind because I would like a person to be able to watch me in a movie or a play and and believe I'm whoever that person is. So I don't want my own uh, life 
to 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 overshadow that, and you know that's that doesn't really last because, and particularly these days, private life is just very written about and talked about. Everybody knows who I'm, or a lot of people know who I'm married to. I had a baby, that was a big, you know, she, big news when we had that that kid, <laughs> which which I. Who I love more than anything, but yes. uh, James, your son, he's what two now? Is it? Yeah, he just yeah. turned two. Uh, but those things, you know, I always am, uh, don't want those things to get to be what I'm about. I well, because up on the stage, you're acting a character. Yeah. We, we aren't supposed, to, as the audience, say, "Well, there's Matthew Broderick." We're supposed to say, "There's yes. whoever the character is." There's Charlie Baker. There's right. J. Pierpont Finch. Yeah, Leo Bloom. Whoever. Exactly. It is. So I, you know, it might be old fashioned to me, but I want to have a little bit of a blank. Slate. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let's ask. Obviously, you know, you had enormous celebrity when in the mid '80s between uh-huh. the Neil Simon plays on Broadway and hit movie after yeah. hit movie, and then, of course, it went to a whole new level for you back here on stage when you went into the producers. I don't yeah. think anybody knew when that project started what a phenomenon that was going to become. No. How what, what what was that whole experience for you of suddenly it was, being <laughs> your life being taken over by this? this it was ma- it was magnificent. It was um, you know I'm just I'm looking at Wayne Salento's name there who choreographed How to Succeed and I'm just because you were asking about the fact that I'd never done musicals and he was just such a huge help. I should I wanted to mention that, but and Susan Stroman who choreographed and directed the producers also. Mm-hmm. That's how I learned how to be in a musical because I really don't know how. Um, that that was uh, – you know, I had done some not very successful movies right before that. So I was, you know, not at the height of my, uh, you know, success stuff, public success. And and no, nobody knew that uh, the producers would be a hit like that. We, you know, we were all a little bit afraid, you know, because we everybody loves that movie so much that you know, are we, you know, diddling with something that's perfect and it'll just be a less perfect version of this, you know, absolutely perfect, maybe best comedy movie ever. So, it's a mistake to think that we were all like, oh, we're going to do this huge hit. Uh, you know what was. It was so uh, so exciting because it was like going back in time. And the play opened, and then there were these big lines, you know, that went all the way down Forty Fourth Street. And it was the cover of the New York Post was a picture of people buying tickets. I felt mm. like it was you know nineteen twenty six or something. It was just uh, thrilling, and uh, and the in- incredibly thrilling thing also was that I was my idol, you know, Mel Brooks. That I was not only meeting him, but being hired by him and and that I was stepping into this on, onto the screen of this thing that I had always loved it was like I was you know put into the movie like the purple rose of cairo or something I was suddenly <laughs> up there uh it was magical and then you know of course Nathan was so uh such a fantastic uh partner um I want to ask you you mm-hmm. and Nathan Obviously, we're both involved in Lion King, uh-huh. the film, 
but the way those animated films are made, in some cases, you track your voice totally on your own. You're not in a totally, room with never. anybody else. So had you even met Nathan? Did you know Nathan before doing The Producers? Not really. I met him because at Because suddenly you became Martin and Lewis. Right. I know. At, at least in a lot of people's <laughs> yeah, minds when you were simply minds. actors yeah. who were cast in roles impeccably. Well, we – yeah. I, I met Nathan at one of the recording sessions of The Lion King and he was uh, – he was um, – just coming out when I was going in, but we never acted together. You know, we just recorded recorded stuff, and uh, totally separately. Uh, so I never worked with him. I, I admired him enormously, and I went to see him in the mannequin to dinner when we were getting ready to do the producers. And uh, I remember watching him, and he was just so expert up there. And I thought, you know, I better get myself ready. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then we had dinner. Uh, after that that show, and we talked, and uh, Nathan and I, from the beginning, uh, felt like we'd known each other for a long time, and also just had a ex- very easy uh, communication on stage. We just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to toot our horn. I'm just saying we have a very easy. I, I I can tell what where he's heading. Well, you seem to be very comfortable with one another. Yeah, we are. You know, and and I and I'm. It's just a – he's just a lovely person to act Well, here's with. a question that I've been dying to know the answer to. Mm-hmm. When I saw you in The Producers, I guess it was early this year when you were in your return engagement. Right. Um, there was a scene at the beginning where Leo Bloom is just getting to meet Max Bialystok in the office. They're just starting yeah. to get into the whole scheme that they come up with. And the heel on your shoe came oh. off. Yeah. Was that a piece of stage business or did that really happen? No, it really happened. Because then Nathan went on to milk it. Well, I know a shoe store downstairs, down yeah, the street and all that. that's right. Did that really just happen? It really happened. I was just walking along and my heel came off and yeah. we tried to keep acting. And then I said – I remember I don't remember exactly, but I said, I think my heel is – I because with that play, for some reason, we would – anything that happened, we would both yeah. very much like to point out that something was wrong. <laughs> so I said my – my heel has come off, Max, and he, and then he said, "There's a shoe store downstairs." And right, right. I started to leave, and he's, "No, come back." <laughs> uh, yeah, we every time something went wrong, we were both just delighted by it. Well, it was, I'm amazed that you remember that incident that night. Well, you, your heel doesn't come off every too day. Often. <laughs> your did whole it, heel. Did it come off in subsequent performances? No, <laughs> you, you didn't work that into the script. No, I wouldn't even know how. That'd be pretty complicated. Well. I think uh, I want to you know, play a cut from the producers. Okay. There's a wonderful number in there where you say, I want to be a producer. Yes. Leo Bloom is, is a, an obscure accountant in a huge accounting firm. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting at his little desk with all the other guys in the green eye shades. Yeah. yeah. And how, how did this song uh, work for you to sing that? I mean, it becomes almost a Busby Berkeley number. Yeah. It was just, it was just fantastic. It was like everybody's fantasy. It's his fantasy. You know, it's Leo Bloom sort of his mind wandering at at his desk, I think. And then uh, he gets deeper into his fantasy of being a producer. And then uh, these tall, beautiful showgirls pop out of all the filing cabinets and and I do a dance with them. Uh, And I get to humiliate my boss and (laughs) just everything that I... An accountant would really like to happen happens. Right. Everybody's and, dreams is to humiliate their boss. Yeah, and, and get away with it. <laughs> exactly, and to uh, and to just dance around with showgirls. It was wonderful, and uh, it, it was. Uh, it took a long time for me to learn. I was very slow to learn all that choreography, but you know, 
Stroman, uh, Stroh, as people call her, uh, is just very patient and very relentless. So she never, uh, she knew what we would get the, uh, that I would get these steps, and she just kept at me, pounding and pounding, 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 and finally we got it. It was great fun to do every night. From the producers, Matthew Broderick, Ashley O'Bloom, and I Want to Be a Producer. You're a native New Yorker. Mm-hmm. You only lived out on the coast briefly. How come you never went Hollywood, so to speak, and moved out? Um, I I don't know. I Because I, I, movies seem to shoot everywhere. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I grew up in New York, and I, I'm not a hater of L.A., but I... Uh, I always wanted to live here. I always wanted to be near my family, and mm-hmm. all my friends are here, you know. Although now some are in L.A., and I, I like going to L.A. to work because I get to see my – everybody I know in L.A. is from New York anyway. It's not that different, mm-hmm. you know, except for the endless traffic and the and now on horrible your, sun on your smashing upcoming, at you all day long. Your upcoming uh, movie version of The Producer, that will be produced here in the East in Brooklyn, Yes, guess, we're right? going to shoot at the Brooklyn Naval Yard. Well, I do want to ask, you know, you were talking about in the Great Heel incident of uh, <laughs> the producers, mm-hmm. there was a spontaneity yeah. that, that you guys yeah. obviously brought to that show. I saw you three times, mm. you know, every time there was something unique. Translating that to film, and how much have you seen a script yet of the film? Do you know what it's going to be, and and how do you feel about finally committing it? As we know, once it's a film, that that's would, what the vast majority of the world is going to remember. I know, not to make you nervous. No, I, I, you're not saying anything I haven't thought of, and it's a it's a very uh, that's the question. I mean, um, a lot of times. Movie movies based on these great performances. You, they're a good record, but they're not like people who who saw, you know, Streetcar always say. And I'm, by the way, not comparing myself to Brando and Streetcar. So, but uh, though I often think of the two roles in the same <laughs> breath. But I mean, when you see the performance in the movie, like people who saw both say, "Oh, you, you should have seen the, you know, seen him on stage or whatever." So you know, it's hard to to make these movie versions because. Uh, and I think with this, it's hard because so much of it was about a heel coming off and, and just mm-hmm. this sort of anything might happen feeling. Uh, so, but you know, it's it's Nathan. So hopefully, we will keep uh, we'll keep that. I don't see why a camera running should stop us from uh, you know letting things happen. There won't be the audience. It's going to be very strange because there'll be no audience, and we were very. Uh, the show well, was a lot about the audience. Obviously, you react a lot with a live audience in front of a camera. It's very different. Yeah, there's just a couple of crew members with sandwiches. And hopefully, heads. they will laugh and applaud also. They better. We, <laughs> we need somebody. Well, bring us back to the present. You're in The Foreigner, which is playing off-Broadway at the Laura Pell's Theater, mm-hmm. the Roundabout Theater Company, producing it, The Foreigner. Runs through January 16th of next year, so there's still plenty of time for people to hop on jet planes and fly into New York yes. to see The Foreigner. Please come. Yes. Well, Matthew, we thank you very much for being with us today. Matthew thank Broderick you. on Downstage Center. It was a pleasure. I'm Howard Sherman from the American Theatre Wing. I want to remind all of our listeners that these programs and all of the American Theatre Wing's media programs are available for free as streaming audio and video from our internet site, www.americantheaterwing.org. And I'm John Von Susten of XM28 on Broadway for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. Thank you.